Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me today and this episode of the podcast show. My very special guest is Juan Hincampier Castillo. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You pronounced it very well. <laughs> Thanks. He's otherwise called G-H-C. So we may call Juan that name also. So listen, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you're a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences. You've got a PhD now and you're passionate about a specific area, which we'll talk about later. But tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Juan Incapia Castillo. Um, I am originally from Colombia and I came to the United States for college. So I got my Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Florida back in 2013. And during my pharmacy degree, I, I got very interested in, in the area of pain management. But I also got interested in research. So after my PharmD, I stayed in, at UF and I got into a PhD program especially in pharmaceutical outcomes and policy with a concentration in pharmacoepidemiology. Just a very long word to say. I look at big data. I look at who uses drugs, medications, for what, when, and how can we make them safer? Are they acting as they should be acting? So that PhD, I graduated from that in 2019. And then I stayed in UF and I am now an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmaceutical Outcomes and Policy. So that's a little bit about myself. And, and my research, of course, is on pain management, mostly from the pharmacoepi perspective and the policy evaluation aspect. Okay, so you've used a lot of big words there. Let's break this down for our audience, okay? Can you just explain what you described to me before we came on about evidence-based policy making. What's this all about? Okay, great. Yes. So this is my passion. So if you look at my LinkedIn, that's what I put in my bio. Um, advocate for evidence-based policy making. So let's break it down. So policy making refers to policy legislation, laws that get passed. More specifically in my field, those laws and policies that affect patient care or that are related to health. Evidence-based refers to making sure that whichever policies get implemented in any society, they are informed by best practices and what is out there in the literature, studies, expert opinion, all the components of evidence-based medicine, the clinician's expertise, the patient's preference, all of that. So I say it is my passion because sadly what I see right now happening, not only in the United States, but in many places, is that Sometimes legislators and policymakers are very reactive to whatever situation or whatever crisis or public health concern is happening. And then laws start passing and policies start being implemented. And then all of a sudden there are unintended consequences. 
And a big part of my research focuses on looking at those unintended consequences. What are the patients going through? Did we see any shifts in prescribing behavior? And what is the effect of that ultimately on patient outcomes, which is what we care about? Okay, well, thank you for outlining that simply for us. And you brought up the issue of policies can be reactive and then they go on and produce harm. So can you give us an example of a policy that's in place that went through the system too quickly and resulted in these harms and consequences? Yeah, and just to step up a little bit, not necessarily that they induce harm, because I don't think that's the intention of whoever is working on these policies and the teams behind them. It's just that policy is more nuanced than just whatever is on the paper. And the reaction of the healthcare team behind implementing those policies might be unforeseeable. So we just recently published a paper at JAMA Network Open looking at the opioid prescription restriction policy that passed in the state of Florida. So we have a federal government in the United States, so states pass different laws that are not consistent across the states. So in the state of Florida, in July of 2018, there was a law that was implemented that restricted opioid medications indicated for acute pain for only a three-day supply. So that means that if a patient presents to their physician with an acute pain presentation, for whatever reason, the doctor can only write the medication that lasts for three days. They could write it for seven days, and that is allowed by the law. So that was implemented in July of 2018. With my colleagues, we were interested in looking at exactly what happened after that. Like that is, as a researcher, like policies that are like great experiments or natural experiments that happen when you can look for data and evaluate what happens. So in that study, we looked at prescription claims. So those are records that get generated every time patients in a certain health plan fill a prescription. So we looked at data from a private payer, a private insurance plan here in the state of Florida, And what we found was that after the implementation of this policy, we did see uh, an immediate decrease in the number of days supply. So if you remember that, that was the intent of the law. The law said three days, only seven days if it is an exception. So we did not see the exception being used very frequently. So that also raises some concerns because now it says that if a patient gets an, an opioid for acute pain, it's only for three days. Interestingly, in that study, what we found, and you could argue is an unintended consequence, is that not only the day supply decreased, and by that, of course, the number of pills decreased with that, the number of patients that were prescribed an opioid also decreased. And in this study, we accounted for a pre-existing trend. So all of a sudden, after the law was implemented, we saw that jump, that decrease. And that decrease continued in the following months afterwards. So in very few words, what is that telling us is that prescribers are not deciding to write opioids for certain patients. And there is no reason to believe that all of a sudden, for this patient population, there will be less needs for opioids. And with our colleagues, we argue that, yes, we do need to control any tablets and pills we give out and they are around in the community to prevent overprescribing. But we argue that we do need to treat pain. We cannot forget about the pain patient. And these policies on the opioid crisis, sadly, 
are being very reactive in they're trying to do what they can. They're very well intended. But the long term, patients are paying patients are the ones paying the consequences. And we have some anecdotal data, for example, of chronic pain patients that are just not able to get their prescriptions filled. So that's a, a little bit of the work that we just published. And that is a good example of one of the laws that we're being looking at. So this research study, did you identify or could you identify any of these patients having chronic pain, like a history of opioid use before this acute episode? Yeah, so that is a great question. So the first analysis that we did was only on acute pain patients. So we restricted those that did not have a history of opioid patients, as far as we could tell from the prescription claims. Our second phase of the analysis is now looking at the chronic opioid users. Uh, So those results are not published yet, but we are looking at what happened if the patients were taking opioids for, let's say, more than 90 days more than 70 days, uh, we would consider them chronic opioid users in this context. What was the effect of the policy? And like again, like the results are not published yet, but we are looking at that. And not only the effect on chronic opioid users, but what was the effect on maybe shifts in prescribing to other classes of medications? Because these patients need something. So are we seeing more NSAIDs? Are we seeing more gabapentin, for example? So that's where we are digging into the data right now trying to answer that. Our first step was just to get some data out there on acute pain. And we had kind of a sense of urgency of publishing that data as soon as possible because right now in the United States, there is a federal Senate bill that is being considered that would limit opioids for acute pain for seven days. So we just want to provide more evidence, again, for that piece of evidence-based policymaking. So yeah, so that's why we decided just to publish that acute pain. And then right now we're evaluating the, the other components. So let's go back a little bit in time with your more research from or your learning studies over the last 10 years or so. And let's give us some general advice based on the evidence, based on the signs of when numbers were dying, you know, over the last 10 years of this opioid crisis. Yes. So we know that this came into the media and like the public awareness recently over the last 10 years, but we have seen these increases happening uh, since the early 2000s. So I think the big misconception, and I think one thing that I try to advocate as much as I can is that, yes, we do have an opioid abuse epidemic and we do have opioid overdoses that are increasing. The landscape of that has changed though. So while initially we did see that most of the overdoses were related to prescription opioids, so those are prescriptions, so those you get in a pill from your pharmacy based on a prescription, or you get from your friends, or you steal from somebody else, those were for a long time presented the higher prevalence of opioid-related overdoses. What has happened over the last five years is that we start seeing an increase in heroin-related overdoses and illicit opioid overdoses like synthetic fentanyl and fentanyl products. So yes, we still do have an opioid abuse epidemic in the United States, but it's not due to prescription opioids. There's 
are still a part of that. But the most concerning thing right now is that those patients are actually using heroin or illicit opioids. And that is where, when you look at policies that try to address the opioid crisis and behind that is the intention of preventing the opioid abuse epidemic, you can see that there's a mismatch there because the policies are addressing prescribing. And we already know from the data published by CDC and many other organizations that the majority of them are not related to prescription opioids. They're related to illicit substances. So the policies should therefore address some of those issues of how can we provide the help necessary to help these patients with opioid use disorders? Not necessarily let's decrease the prescription, which can ultimately harm the patients that need it. So I think that's my take-home message on, and I hope I answered your question. I know that was a long-winded, but that's something else that I'm very passionate about is trying to educate the audience of the difference between that not all opioids are the same. They are pharmacologically opioids, but the substances being used differ significantly. It's different to have an OxyContin or OxyCodone tablet than injectable heroin from the street. Exactly. So really we've moved away from the prescribing drugs causing the deaths to these illicit substances, fentanyl being the the most popular one and, and also heroin. You know, in the States right now, this is March in 2020, is the death rate still going up? For fentanyl and, the, and heroin, yes, they're still increasing. So the CDC calls them like three waves of overdoses. So they call it the first wave, which was mostly that related to the prescription opioids. The second wave, as they call it, uh, that was related to heroin. And the third wave, which is synthetic opioids. So the ones that the CDC keeps reporting an increasing of is that of synthetic opioids. Wow. Where do you feel the research should be going in the next three years with this to help the policymakers make better choices and help the physicians and the population make better choices about this? Because we do need the science behind it. Yes. And this is what is also a point of frustration for me because I navigate between the world of pain management and then substance abuse policies, right? So the evidence is pretty clear of what needs to be offered to these patients with opioid use disorders. So we know that medication-assisted treatment works when coupled with therapy. And these are buprenorphine, methadone, coupled with therapy. But we see a lot of limits on their use. So I think the evidence is pretty clear that they do work. So we just need to work on providing those services for people that need it. Should we be limiting opioid prescriptions? That is, I'm hesitant of saying either yes or no. We have to be careful because we have to allow the physicians to to treat their patients as they have done and provide them with the best evidence. And the best evidence for pain management, of course, now says that, and you probably know better than because I don't practice clinically, but you know better that opioids in the long term for chronic pain necessarily are not the best option. But for some patients, that is their only option. So as far as the evidence needed, I think the evidence is out there. It's mostly about what are we doing now? How are we advocating for policymakers to, to not only look at the medical side of, okay, these are the prescriptions, but what can we do from the therapeutic aspect of helping people with substance use disorders? 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I know you have a very specialized area of interest, which is such a such an important thing to do. And I think the most of us in the field, you know, helping our patients, whether we're specialists doing the best we can with interventions or pharmaceuticals like opioids, or we're family physicians, and we're really in the trenches and often left with the patients who specialists are not prescribing for, and we're just doing the best we can. And I went through over a decade of trying to minimize the amounts of opioids in patients' lives. And with the, the additional use of benzodiazepines, which we've been hearing in the podcast show in the last few episodes, the dangers associated with that. And I spent over a decade reducing these doses as much as I could with these people. And, um, and now I have a practice where I exclusively, I would say 99% of the time, focus on non-drug methods for chronic pain. And as I was sharing, like the cognitive behavioral approach with neuroplasticity and you know, mindset and doing activities that literally allow your brain to change and therefore to have a different program that has a different experience of the pain, you know, and then the nutritional aspect, something we've talked about on the show as well, it's a huge part of my practice now. And I also do an interventional technique to help my patients. But, you know, I do have a few patients who are still on their opioids and that for now, as we reduce the doses, because they don't need the massive doses that they thought they needed over the years, we're slowly reducing those as well. But I think for me, at the end of the day, it's a very good question. Like every patient is an individual and no matter what the evidence is out there or the policy, at the end of the day, they're a patient with the physician and you only know the outcomes when you try something with your patient. And, um, you know, I, remember, I go back in my practice, I remember an elderly gentleman who tried all different drugs, like literally everything. And he came to me and I was unable to help him with my injection technique. And I says, okay, let's try fentanyl. And I'll be controversial here. And this little fentanyl patch literally cured this guy's incapacity. He still had headaches, but he had 50 years, 50 years of incapacity. He was a, he was a professor and he was just incapacitated and couldn't function, like literally couldn't function. And their little dose of fentanyl patch, um, you know, and who would have believed, right? Who would have believed that that was going to happen? But it did. So that's why it's tricky. And it's very, very difficult for all of us to kind of do the right job at the right time with the right patient. But that's the art of medicine. You know, that's the, where the compassion comes in and the importance of really connecting with your patients and understanding them. And at the end yes. of the day, still giving them hope because we should never ever give away hope. Okay, let's just, is there any resources that our audience could maybe go to for a little bit more information about the signs of what we're talking about today? Well, I think if you want to look at the data and I'm very data driven with the pandemic happening, I've been making a couple of videos for my own family explaining them that the numbers. So I think the numbers speak sometimes for themselves. So I do encourage people to go, if you're in the United States, to go to the cdc.gov website. They have very good comprehensive data for now for many years on overdose death rates involving opioids in the current prescribing of that. Um, and hopefully those numbers, again, speak for themselves in showing very clearly color-coded what are the trends happening and where are the overdoses happening. And it's not the commonly prescribed opioids is mostly synthetic opioids and illicit substances. Um, so that is a good resource for, for data on overdoses. 
SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration uh, website, has a lot of resources for those uh, that need some help with guidance on treatment for substance use disorders, especially opioid use disorders. So I encourage people also to look at that. Um, there's a lot of research. I mean, I'm opioids, as you can imagine, because it's such a hot topic, there's evidence coming out every day. So I'm hesitant on telling the public to look for the literature, but just know that if you want to look for the literature, there is a lot that is being published. Some news organizations have dedicated spaces for news articles and news and like news reports talking about new research coming on related to opioids. So I know that the New York Times has an opioid abuse epidemic section. I think the Washington Post, uh, they do as well. So I think those are some of the resources that, that I would use uh, if I wanted to read more on that. Okay, Juan, thank you again. It's been great to talk to you. I wish all the best in your career as you move forward and continue to help us know more what's going on on the ground level by doing your research. Very important part of the big picture with chronic pain and the opioid crisis. So again, thank you so much. No, thank you for all you do for your patients and using multimodal options. I think that's very good. Thank you so much.